in the morning. When you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. Lights FC lost to Rio Grande Valley five to nothing on Saturday. Rio Grande Valley entered that game as the worst team in the Western Conference, and Lights got beat at home 5 0. They did get a red card in the 14th minute, and this game was scoreless in the 14th minute, and Rio Grande Valley scored five goals against 10 man Lights FC. But 5 0, they got out shot 23 to 4. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. Hurt their place in the standings or no? They are still in a playoff spot right now. Okay. Uh, but they have fallen from, I think they were fifth down to seventh. Uh, only the top seven make the postseason. They are one point ahead of eight, eighth place. So they, as of right now, they're in still in the postseason. I think it is now seven games left in the year. Uh, as of right now, they're in the postseason. Uh, but they do. That was supposed to be one of the easier games on the schedule to end it the year. It didn't turn out that it did, way. It did not turn out that way. So uh, not good for Lights FC in their push for their first ever postseason spot they very easily even with 10 men this. though to get out scored or get out shot 23 right. or four complete, and give up five that's complete, complete domination complete disaster yeah. i mean you go down to 10 you kind of yeah to you're in trouble in a sense but to lose 5-0 and get out shot 23 to 4 that's just that's pretty pathetic this is bigger than football and our culture here is is more important to us than winning football games the Bills plan to release Matt Ariza. The punter has been accused of raping a 17-year-old when he was at San Diego State. Uh, the Bills have said that they did not know about this when they drafted him. However, there have been reports that they did know about it earlier this month when they cut Matt Hack, their other punter, which effectively made Matt Ariza the starting punter. This, uh, it almost seems too obvious but this basically just looks like the Bills knew about this at some point, and they were still going to have Matt Ariza be their starting punter. Well, and didn't they do an internal investigation, according to them? And didn't talk to the, uh, talk to the woman or her lawyer? Yeah. Yes. Um, but it but it, beca- it looks very obvious that the Bills were, they at some point were made aware of it. They did not care and were going to have this guy be their punter until... It became public information, right. and then once it became public, then the it Bill becomes the public perception and pressure. Uh oh, we look got to cut them, and we better cut our punter. Uh, so, Jared, who's sound? Who was that that was just talking? GM? Yeah, that was the GM, uh, Brandon Bean. When he talks about our culture is more important, he's full of it. Their culture was perfectly fine accepting him until it became the, public knowledge. The weird, not weird, the kind of disturbing facts about this one is that. The San Diego Police Department are still like we want to go forward with charges. This isn't like the we've uh, we've we didn't we decided not to like right. um we decided not to like Wash press charges press, not press charges. No, they're like we're waiting on like evidence to like continue like the investigation, the investigation. possible charges. Yeah, so this is like dude, did you did you talk to the police even? They talked to Matariza. And that was it. Who admitted that, yes, I may have had sex with a girl who was kind of young. Jesus Christ. In terms of handling it in-house, Sean, was there any discipline involved? 
Yeah, we, we're going to keep all that stuff in house, kind of like we talked about. So hopefully you respect that. But there was just there was. I talked to Aaron. We've dealt with it in house. Yes. <laughs> that was Sean McVay not answering. They did the nothing. <laughs> um, I hope you respect that. <laughs> absolutely nothing. So. Aaron Donald swung multiple helmets at Bengals players during a joint practice last week. For some reason, there's an NFL rule that says they can't punish players for what goes on at a joint practice. It sounds as stupid as it did last week when I say it out loud. Uh, the It's up to the Rams to punish Aaron Donald for swinging a helmet at opposing players, or I guess even his own players would be bad too. Uh, and that was Sean McVay answering questions about if he was punished or not. I talked to Aaron. <laughs> I talked to Aaron. And Aaron did not like that. Exactly. That was a punishment. Exactly. Aaron was like, what'd I do? Right. I'm your guy. Okay. McVeigh went to him and said, you know, we'd appreciate if you didn't do that. Uh, but if you do, one help. <laughs> I, okay. I know we talked about it last week. I still can't get over that the NFL can't punish players for what happened yeah, in a joint they practice. They seem to be able to investigate everything. I, and they can't investigate this? Like, that seems like one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. Because like, these are two teams in your league coming together right. for these for these workouts. Does the NFL punish players for what they wear in post-game press conferences? Well, they that... certainly punish them for what they wear under the field. Right. But, like, it's unbelievable that you'll get fined for having your sock height wrong. Right. But Aaron Donald swinging helmets. Oh, not up to us. That was a joint practice, everybody. We can't do anything about that. Didn't they punish someone for wearing their, having a pink, like, dyeing oh, sure. their hair pink because they, hair is considered yeah. a part of the uniform? Yeah. They, with that uniform stuff, they go way overboard on that stuff. It's, it's incredible. And the Rams, like, again, McVeigh asked twice, did you punish him? And he refused to say whether or not he yep. actually no, punished him. No, they talked him. to him. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. I, t I what, talked to Aaron. Did they even talk to him? Well, I bet they talked to him, said, hey, Aaron, like I said, listen... Uh -huh. Hey, what ha what he say do to you to get camera. you so upset? Yeah. Do the Bengals need to punish him? <laughs> oh, God. No, absolutely not. Um, I love Nebraska. I'm going to fight fight with the guys uh, as long as I can fight. Hey, Scott Frost. Uh, Nebraska lost to Northwestern 31-28. to That was Scott Frost. I believe he was answering a question about would you resign <laughs> <laughs> after the first game of the season. So, Nebraska... Uh, pretty well documented they went three and nine last year and eight of their nine losses were by one possession they were zero and eight in one possession games you went the only team worse than UNLV in one possession games last year was Nebraska and they lost their last six games of last year all by one possession and then lost to Northwestern by three making them the first team in the history of college football to lose seven straight games all by one possession you see the onside kick up by up 11, 11. And the onside kicks, and then afterwards, if I had to do it over, really? You think? If you had to do it over again, you wouldn't do it? Talk about overthinking the room. It's Northwestern never looked back. It's And then Nebraska's last offensive possession of the game, pass goes right off a wide right. receiver's hands and is intercepted. Like, not even like, oh, terrible read, terrible. Nope, just receiver off his hands, picked off. Northwestern wins the game. It was incredible last year that Nebraska, no matter who they played, it was a close game. Because I, I believe the only loss they had by more than one possession was like a 10-point loss to Ohio State. <laughs> like, they still didn't get blown out by Ohio State. It was unbelievable, and they might be doing it again this year, where no matter, like...
They play Northwestern, who's probably going to be bad, lose by three. They play Ohio State, who's going to the college football playoff, lose by six. Like, it's phenomenal. <laughs> the, put them in the college football playoff because it'll be the best game we see. It'll be, tough, it'll be all a season. tough game for Alabama. They, yeah. They, Alabama will win, but it's going to be by, by three. Six. It's not going to be a blowout. Kalong told me a couple of days ago. I, you got to get rid of this echo. <laughs> can't talk. I'm drunk. Whatever. <laughs> the internet went down at the stadium in Ireland during the Nebraska Northwestern game and the response because they couldn't take uh, any money or uh, credit cards during the game. They gave away the beer for free at concession. That's stadium. Ireland. So you had that's Ireland. college football plus Ireland plus, plus free, free beer. beer. <laughs> what a tonic that would be to mix. Like if you were to pick the two places on earth where the most beer is consumed, college football game and Ireland, and Ireland. would and put be them together. very high at the, at the uh, list. And, and then they made no money. And then it was all free. Uh, so, yeah, phenomenal. I Did you see the video of the lines like no. during halftime? Oh, for the free beer? Yeah. No. It, ridiculous. Like those people didn't get back to watch the game. Did you see uh, a pregame in Ireland, the amount of Nebraska fans? Oh, now, yeah. they travel everywhere. I get it. They're completely out of their minds. But to Ireland, it was it was a sea of red. It's like, and I know they had chance to plan it because this game probably was announced. I don't know what two three years probably. ago for all we know. Yeah. Um, but still, still to travel to Ireland, it was ridiculous. And they suck. Yeah, they don't like, care. It's not even. It's not the nineties oh. when Nebraska was awesome. Like right, they're bad. And it's still oh yeah. It was amazing how many Nebraska we fans went thousand fans to Ireland. To Ireland. I can I can take you a little bit behind the scenes of one of our studios is wired up to Cornhusker Radio Network from existing in the 90s. So we can run every Nebraska game? If we wanted to. And why aren't we? The games are great. <laughs> I think we have to pay technically. Uh-huh. I don't care about him. But at question. some point, we're ready. Uh, Josh Hader allowed six earned runs while recording one out on Sunday against the Royals. Josh Hader, as a Padre, has pitched four and two-thirds innings while giving up 12 hits, walking eight, and allowing 12 earned runs. What in the world happened to this guy? This he, was at the deadline with the Soto and all the big... Yeah. This was at the deadline. They made all these big moves, and he has been as you'd like to say horrific he's been like seriously he's that's that is worst pitcher in baseball that is you are designated for assignment and nobody even questions right because the guy is gone um so just just if you want to take a guess maybe you saw this stat do you know how many runs josh Hader allowed all of last season i have not seen it you want me to guess sure earned runs earned runs last year uh, all of last year in which he pitched, I'll give you the innings pitch number, uh, 58 and two-thirds last year. Less than 12. Eight. Yeah. Eight earned runs in an entire season. And he he's already it. allowed 12 and four and two-thirds innings. As a Padre. That is unbelievable. His ERA last year was 1.23. So far as a Padre, it's 23.1. The only time I've seen a 23 ERA is when it's the starting pitcher in game one and he gave up a run. Right. In like the first inning. inning, Exactly. And it's like, oh, his ERA is infinite because he gave up a solo home run to start the game. 
a 23 ERA. That's it's unbelievably bad. And this guy has been like the best reliever in baseball for the first like six years. He's not of even a reliever anymore. Yeah, you can't put him in the game. Now. That's that's unbelievably bad. And by the way, the other question: Why does Bob Melvin keep leaving him in the game? Yes, yeah, six earned runs with one out on Saturday. Now, what, I believe what, one came home after he pulled Hater and one of the still, runners left still. on. So five with when he leaves. Right. I mean, but psychologically, you keep him. You keep him out there to just get. Yeah. Eh, he'll get over it. He keeps <laughs> throwing like 25, 35 pitches in an appearance. Gets like one out. Walks guys. Man, he gets walks a everybody. Like, what? Pull him out of the game, Bob Melvin. What are you doing? Like, stop leaving the like. Pull the guy after he gives up two base runners and still doesn't have an out or so. Well, I guess you got to face at least three. But like, how's he? How are you leaving the guy? You yeah. just think, oh, he'll figure it out this time. He's not going to. Like, if you put him in there and the first three guys, he doesn't have at least two outs. Take you got to out. go get him because this is like, I think they're killing the guy. Like, his, where we talk so much about Alex Leatherwood's confidence. Where's Hader's confidence? Oh. There's no way he's ever struggled this much ever. No, in his career, in ever oh. ever pitching. I can't imagine he's ever looked this bad. Where's his? He went from legitimately best reliever in baseball, and oh, now when they, when they got him at the trade deadline, I was completely depressed. Right. And, and the guy can't get Soto. him out. Like I can't imagine what Josh Hader's thinking. Like what? Ha- he's got to be yeah. like, what the hell happened to me? Like <laughs> I, I used to not give up any runs, and now all of a sudden he can't get anybody out. All right, coming up next, the Aces. They kind of blew it in game one. They're down one zero to the Seattle Storm. Long pass to Plum for three. The tie. Back rim, no good. Bat around into the hands of Stewart, and Seattle is going to win this game. The Seattle Storm, the number four seed, come in here and steal one from the Aces. All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition. Aces are now down 1-0 in the semifinals. They trailed for basically the entire game to the Seattle Storm. Aces shot just 41% from the field, 26% from three. How big of a deal is it that they're down 1-0 in a best-of-five series? Oh, I don't think it's that big a deal. Really? No, I don't think it's that big a deal. You think they can easily go 3-1? and I one? think to lose by three and to play in spots as poorly as they did, then I'm not overreacting this morning. They played pretty poorly in spots, and they had a shot to tie it. I felt like that game should have been a blowout for the Seattle Storm. I feel like that should not have been even close. I feel like Seattle also played horrible. Which doesn't doesn't that tell you that the Aces could be okay? I feel the other way. I feel like those two teams play that same game again. Seattle wins by 15. Now, Aces play better. Aces win the game. But the, so, okay, a couple things. First off, the Aces defense wasn't the actual problem in this game. It was the offense. But... The reason I think Seattle was so close to blowing that game out is we've talked about it this season. The Aces defense, they're very aggressive. They trap ball screens. They double team in the post and all that. You do all that because you, you're you going to force some turnovers over the course of a game. And when you force turnovers, you can often get out and transition and get some easy baskets. The Aces didn't score a single basket in transition right. in that game. They did not force turnovers against Seattle when they would trap and when they would double team. Seattle got open shots. Two things that Seattle should have done better in that game was three point shooting. Seattle shot 23% and they missed a lot of good shots. They missed a lot of pass out of a double team for an open three and miss it. The other key part of this game and why it was close. Tina Charles was horrible. Wait, what word should I use? Atrocious. Tina Charles was horrific in that game because 
What Seattle did over and over, Tina Charles would set the ball screen and the Aces would trap whoever the ball handler was. So Tina Charles would catch a bounce pass about nine feet away from the basket with space to go to the rim. And Tina Charles shot six of 18 in that game. She only took one three. She shot 33% while shooting almost everything from inside the arc and almost everything from in the paint. She was horrible, atrocious, awful, horrific. If Tina Charles makes nine of 18 shots, which is still bad when you're shooting everything in the paint, Seattle wins that game easily. And then if Seattle makes 33% of their threes instead of 23%, which again, we're largely open, Seattle wins that game by almost 20 points because Seattle's offensive game plan was perfect to take advantage of what the Aces do defensively. They just couldn't make anything. Tina Charles couldn't make anything, and the Storm couldn't make a three. So, and here's the thing. I think the Aces' individual players, I think they deserve a lot of credit because they were rotating and they were helping and they were scrambling, and they were very good in some one-on-one situations, but I think the scheme is stretching them too much. And if they do the same exact thing against Seattle in game two, Seattle's going to score 95 points in the game. Seattle's going to have a great offensive game against the Aces if they do the same exact thing they just did. So I think it's more likely if nothing changes, the Aces get blown out in game two than the other way around where the Aces come back and win game two. If they make some changes defensively or whatever, then absolutely the Aces should win that game. Or they could just be awesome offensively. That's what I was going to say. What if and, they're, and they're, have the they're back to shooting nothing but threes and making them? But I'll give you this too, the Aces offense. So I think a big part of this is the defense getting them no transition opportunities. I think that's a big deal. Because they didn't get oh, any. you get outscored sixteen right. zero in the fast break. That's a problem. They didn't get anything from their defense to help right. create some offense. But I think you look at Asia Wilson. She took ten shots. She only made three of them. Had eight points. She only took one shot the entire fourth quarter. I assume the Aces are if they're in a close game in the fourth quarter, they're going to force feed Asia Wilson a little bit in game two. But here's where I think the Aces' biggest problem is: it's Kia Stokes. Uh, so Dierica Hamby's out. Dierica Hamby is not going to play the entire series in the semifinals. Maybe she's able to come back if they make it to the NBA or WNBA finals. But Kia Stokes uh, kind of killed the Aces offensively. Two things. Number one, Seattle doesn't guard her. Uh, there was a play. Kia Stokes had the ball in the corner on the three-point line. She's being guarded by Tina Charles. Asia Wilson is trying to post up on the block. Tina Charles left Kia Stokes, who had the ball in her hands, to go double-team Asia Wilson in the post. Just, just left her and went and double-teamed Asia Wilson. Kia Stokes took a three, missed a three. Kia Stokes, uh, what was she, she made five three-pointers this year, shot 21% from three this year. The Seattle Storm, when Kia Stokes is on the floor, do not have to even look at her when she's on the three-point line. If she has the ball or not, they don't even have to look at her. They can go sag into the paint and help on Asia Wilson. That's a killer. The other killer in this game from Kia Stokes, she missed three layups. Three times where she got open because Seattle's not afraid to leave her, and she missed layups. Not three-pointers. Shots right at the rim. I expect Kia Stokes to make layups, but I do not expect her to make threes. And if you're the Aces right now, you have to figure out what to do with Kia Stokes on the floor because you cannot have her at the three-point line. It's the same problem they ran into with Bill Lambeer, where teams could just sag into the paint and take away layups in the postseason. If Kia Stokes is on the floor... Tina Charles, whoever's guarding her, doesn't have to defend her outside of five feet. Doesn't even have to look at her until she gets within five feet. And then last night, even within five feet, didn't have to guard her because she missed three layups. That's a massive problem for the Aces that they are going to have to figure out 
how to not get the defense all clogged up in the paint when Kia Stokes is on the floor. Where do you put the blame on? Because I think it's either Hammond, her assistants, maybe it's even Asia Wilson uh, not trying to get open enough that she only takes one shot in the fourth quarter. Um, Does Hammond understand that? Should her assistants be more aggressive in telling her she's only got one shot? Like, where do you put this blame? Because you can't have Asia Wilson taking one shot in the fourth quarter of a close game. Asia Wilson was not very good, uh, but I think a lot of the credit goes to Seattle. More than anything else, I think Seattle deserves credit for the way they defended the Aces. And again, it's a lot of it circles around Kia Stokes, right? And a lot of it circles around the Aces shooting 22% from three, right? If the Aces make right. a bunch they of threes. they shoot 35%, yeah. it's a different if, game. If Kia Stokes, again, she only made five in the regular season, so you shouldn't expect this. But if Kia Stokes hits a couple of threes in game two, then Seattle might actually guard her. And which means they're Asia not. Asia Wilson's going to be open. They, again, or they were going to be more open. They, than there she were multiple was. possessions where she was double teamed before a pass even went to her because Kia Stokes is in the game and they don't have to guard her. So I think a lot of it goes to Seattle. Is there some that goes to Becky Hammond? Probably a little bit, but the only player that was playing well offensively was Chelsea Gray. And that's who took, I think, the, her and Kelsey Plum took the most shots in the fourth quarter. Um, but I think, I think more of that is credit to Seattle than anything else. And the blame would fall more on the actual. Uh, lineup the Aces have. You have a problem there. with Kelsey Plum taking 23 shots? Um, not really. I mean, she was the leading scorer on the team, and especially there in the last couple of minutes when they're losing. And, you know, the last two shots were three pointers when they're down three with like 12 seconds to go or whatever it was. Not really, um, because she's. She's better than that. I mean, we've seen an entire season of Kelsey Plum being better than eight of 23, like she was yesterday. So, not too much. Uh, but it wasn't a very good game. Like the aces lost that game because uh, I can talk about the defense and Kia Stokes in reality. They lost that game because their two MVP candidates were bad. Mm-hmm. Asia Wilson was three of 10. Kelsey Plum was eight of 23. Their two MVP candidates were bad. And I'm sitting here telling you all the reasons that's wrong. Those two play good, play just slightly better. They win, and they're up one, nothing despite playing poorly. So that, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways the aces win game two, three and four. And it's, this was a one game blip. But I do think there's real cause for concern that Seattle has figured a couple things out and the Aces are going to have to respond. And until we see them respond, we don't know if they're going to because the Kia Stokes problem exists and their defensive scheme, I think, is an, is a big issue against Seattle. Can I give you one random complaint? Of course. Does it have to do with the crowd? No, no, no. Um, I was at the game. It was The crowd was great. You went? Yeah. I mean, yeah, my dad likes going to the Aces games, especially the one o'clock games on the weekend so he can go to bed at a normal time. Did you have the regular seats up top? Yeah, we sat in the very last row. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. They're okay. great seats. Yeah, $10 seats, 15 after fees, $15 seats. Was there miss twice, get, earn a slice? Uh, nobody missed twice. Tina Charles oh. missed the first free throw of the game and then made the second one, and then I don't think, I don't know if Seattle missed another one the entire game. <laughs> but here's my here's my complaint for you. The amount of times in the WNBA that players don't understand the advance rule. In the last minute, if you call the timeout, you can move the ball all the way into the front court. Right. And la- the Aces got bailed out last night. They got a defensive stop, and Raquana Williams got the rebound, passed it to Kelsey Plum, and then Kelsey Plum started dribbling up the floor. Meanwhile, Becky Hammonds probably lost her voice screaming for a timeout on the sideline. The refs had to get together because the rule is, if you take a timeout in the final uh, minute of a game, you can advance the ball all the way up into the front I court. I saw her yelling about this. Right. And, but the rule is, is that if you dribble or pass the ball forwards before the timeout, you, you, right. you, you lose that. It's right wherever the That's timeout where she was, was screaming. And 
the refs had to get together because the Aces players didn't call, they didn't call the timeout or look for it. They just tried to go up the floor as quickly as possible. And because of that, they should not have gotten the advance. But the refs, I don't know, gave them the benefit of the doubt, and they did get that. But that was incredible to me. That it, And it happens all of the time. Like, all the time in the WNBA, players will get a rebound, get a steal, and instead of calling the timeout to advance it, they start trying to dribble up the floor. And it's like, just, no, you're going to call the timeout, and you're going to get the advance, and it's it's amazing to me. Like, learn the advance rule. It's a great rule for you. It's a great rule for the offense, and they still blow it. Coming up next, Caleb Herring joins the show. Shotgun formation. Here comes a blitz. Back to throw. Bailey, and Bailey is sacked, and down he goes at the 49-yard line. And in to race in and wrap him up and aggressively bring him to the turf. Defensive lineman Cortland Horton. You're listening to the Press Box Summer Edition. Joining us now is Caleb Perry. You can hear him on game days with Russ Langer right here on ESPN Las Vegas calling the action for UNLV football. Uh, Caleb, Doug Brumfield was almost as perfect as a quarterback can be. What was most impressive to you about Doug Brumfield on Saturday? Uh, you know, it was a great game, first of all. Um, but I I think what was most impressive was that he was in tune with the game plan and uh, not just that he had a, 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 an impressive percentage as far as completions, but that he knew where to go. There was no accidental completions. There was no... Uh, there was no situation where it was a broken play that led to a completed pass or anything like that. Everything that he threw was essentially a read that he went through his progression to get to. Um, also impressive in that was there were several times, and the 72-yard touchdown is one of them, where he actually changed the play to a, a better option and, and took advantage of something the defense was giving him. Um, there was a time where he brought also Chad Magyar into the backfield for protection. Um, to sew up the protection, he, he picked up, and Chad ends up picking up an interior blitzer that allows for him to then complete the pass down the field. So those parts of the game where you can tell he was mentally locked in, I think were the most impressive parts. And I, I think we haven't seen a quarterback do that in uh, some time at UNLV where it was just total command of the offense. Granted, if you get Idaho State, and it, what that, it had nothing to do, what Doug did to me had nothing to do with who the opponent was because the type of zone he was in, it, it was just he was right. He was right more often than not. Um, and I think that was the most impressive part, where he was mentally engaged in the game, um, and he commanded Coach Royal's offense um, to a level that no quarterback's done yet in the system. So I think that was probably the most impressive part of it. Don't be so modest. The last time we saw it, it was Caleb Herring against Central Michigan. <laughs> Come on! I didn't want to say it, Ed. I didn't want Come to on. say it. I, I, I let it linger out there. I'll let other people say it, but everybody knows what I was going at. You're darn right. <laughs> Did you like how Marcus Arroyo was that aggressive? They're throwing the ball around. Uh, they didn't have to run very much as much as Brumfield was playing, but did you like the attack? Uh, yeah, I think that's what they want to be uh, offensively. I think they want to be aggressive at attacking downfield with a healthy dose of run, not necessarily a, the, the main feature, but they want to be able to run the ball when they need to, which I think they demonstrated short yard situations, goal line situations, I think. Um, that's where they want to be able to finish drives with some, some physicality with the guys up front. But I think it's the intention of this offense to be an explosive down the field um, by the numbers. It's, it's just where football's trending, and Coach Arroyo is a numbers guy. Um, so he understands the, the importance of having explosive plays. And I think that's what you saw in the recruiting when he went after so much receiver depth, not just to avoid injuries being so catastrophic in the receiver room, but also because you need a lot of guys in the stable that are able to push the ball down the field 
with the route running and Ricky White and Jeff Weimer, um, guys like Seneca McKee who weren't on the starting rotation, but even down the depth chart, Zio Griffin, those names, there's, there's got to be a lot of names to, if you want to be a, a team that's uh, primarily oriented down the field in the receiving game. So I think that's the intention. I think they wanted to practice that. They wanted to perform in live situations um, under those conditions. They didn't want to come out against Idaho State and, and try to be something they're not and just play bully ball, and, which they could have done. I think they, out, you know, they were more physical than Idaho State, obviously. Um, but I think it's their intention to be a down-the-field team, so I think they executed their game plan and their style of play. And I hope that that's the way they can execute against any opponent, no matter who it is. Uh, on the flip side of Brumfield's performance, uh, what did you think was wrong for Harrison Bailey? And this is something that I think he struggled with throughout camp, and it's something that we got a, a glimpse at, I, I think in his own words, during spring practice when he mentioned to reporters that um, this was the most complicated offensive system he's ever been a part of, and that included you know, his time at Tennessee, obviously. Um, so I think what we saw, and this is what I've seen throughout fall camp, was a little bit of hesitation because he's not trusting what he sees yet. And it's a part of the learning curve that every quarterback goes through. And it's what we've seen at quarterback for the Rebels for the last two seasons because they've been learning it. So you see Doug in year three, the confidence that he has to step back and go through his progressions and get rid of the ball on time. I don't think Harrison has that totally yet, especially this really being his first time going full live action in a game for UNLP. It, the game hasn't slowed down for him yet. And that's not to say he's not talented. It's not to say he won't get there at some point. But he just hasn't had that aha moment yet where it's like, oh, the offense makes sense. I can go through my progressions confidently and deliver the ball accurately and on time. Um, so I think that's what we saw a little bit of him. I think we, we did see you know him try to cut it loose on a deep ball, missed, unfortunately, to the big shot play to Zyle Griffin. But I, I think that's what we're seeing. is The learning curve still is, is a factor with Harrison as far as getting comfortable with the offense so we can run it as efficiently as possible. Um, and that's, that's what it's been all camp. And I, I think once he catches up, once he gets there, you'll start to see why he was recruited to Tennessee, why out of eighth grade he was getting offers and, and things like that. He has the talent. The pieces are there. The arm strength, the accuracy is all there. But he has to be confident in his read and what, he, what he's seeing out there on the field. Uh, percentage, it was Idaho State secondary. Percentage, Ricky White, is that good? <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to go – I'd say 50-50 with that um, because it's not like Ricky White didn't do it against Michigan, who's one of the, who was one of the best defenses at the time when he went for 100-plus yards in that game. That was his real coming-out party on the college stage, and that's what Rebel fans were excited about when he, we landed him in the transfer portal, that he had that potential. Um, for it to show up against Idaho State, I think kind of a little bit expected, um, but I do think he's the real deal. I don't just because it was Idaho State putting up 170 plus yards in a single game is impressive, no matter who you do it against. Um, so I think it, and that really was in a half of football. Um, but I do think Ricky White is the real deal, and uh, with Doug Brumfield and he having a good connection, um, and then also the other weapons around him that make it difficult really to focus in on any one receiver. I think the situation he finds himself in at UNLV he's going to have opportunities to have big games like that. I think every receiver will, but I think definitely Ricky White is the real deal. Idaho State maybe assisted it um, in putting the numbers up so quickly, but what a coming out party for him. I think the expectation is in the Mountain West, he should be one of the top receivers when all said and done. Caleb, I'm curious, uh, as somebody who played quarterback at UNLV, does it make a difference to the quarterbacks 
if the coach does or does not name a starting quarterback publicly before the first game? Like, does it matter to Doug Brumfield that there's an or on the depth chart and that Arroyo doesn't say, yeah, he's the guy, or is all that irrelevant to the players? I, well, first off, I think the or on the depth chart was probably something that um, <laughs> they talked about before it was released to us, right? I mean, the quarterback room is, is a tight-knit group, and Coach Arroyo, I'm sure, probably – Doug probably knew he was starting – but, you know, even with that or on the depth chart, right? So I think that that's a, there's a little bit of an inside game where you tell the guys, um, and you don't necessarily re- release it to the media or make it official publicly yet. Um, I don't think it uh, affects the game as much. I think, um, like I said, as long as there's that internal conversation of who's getting the ones reps. And based on what I saw in camp, Doug was getting the ones reps most of the time and a little bit of team that we got to watch. Doug was with the ones more often than not. Um, so I think there was an internal conversation, and that's always the key. Um, if it's a complete mystery to everybody where the coach keeps it a secret and it's in a vault in his office and nobody really knows who the one is until the start of the game, that definitely has an impact. There's a difference. There shouldn't be, but there is. It's psychologically impossible, right, to, to prepare as a starter versus preparing as a backup. It's different. Um, so there is that edge. But if you've been locked in a competition all-fall camp, it shouldn't matter game day if you're not the starter or if you are the starter. Your preparation should have gotten you ready. Um, so in this case, I don't think the players, I don't think it made the difference to Doug or to Harrison whether they were named publicly or not. It's good for your family to know. It's good to celebrate that and actually publicly win the competition. But I tell you what, it's probably more satisfying to do what Doug did and to go out there and leave no doubt on Saturday to where nobody really has a question of who the starting quarterback is. It wasn't like somebody named you the guy. You really earned it on the public stage. I think that would be probably more impactful than anything for quarterback's confidence going forward. Yeah, I agree. I don't know why we need to know. It's it's a thing. It's, it's, it's there's storylines. There's things that we have to follow. There's the conversation, the media conversation around sports that you get it. Like the you know you want to be able to announce that and have that information before the game. Um, but from the the player's perspective, it doesn't really matter. Like hey, we're fighting, we're competing. If the quarterback, if you know. It's the same thing for an injury. If somebody goes down, you're going to be ready to go up anyway. Um, it's just a decision that I think uh, gets a lot of weight to it pregame and preseason. Um, but, and it's one of those things, if there's a controversy, of course, we're going to follow it. But from the in-the-locker-room point, it's guys in the locker room know who the starter is before a coach names them. And guys in the locker room, if anything, uh, will know that a quarterback maybe got a decision wrong before anything else. Um, and and, and there, that can cause a lot of different chaos as well when we put too much on naming a starter. Um, the starter goes out there and shows it and goes out and takes the job. Um, and I think, like I said, that's what Doug did on Saturday. All right, Caleb, we appreciate it. Again, you can hear him on game day right here on ESPN Las Vegas with Russ Langer calling all of UNLV's games. Caleb Herring, former UNLV quarterback. Thank you so much, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Good talk. Uh, so Central Caleb Michigan, Herring. man. He owns the record. <laughs> what is it? The completion percentage record? The, yeah, the efficiency the number. Efficiency, he was uh, yeah. he's number one, uh, and Doug Brumfield became number two this week. Does it's uh, he not only is he number one, but he did it against a Division one team, right? Like that Central that means, means a little bit yeah. more than doing it against Idaho State. Right? <laughs> just saying, just for Caleb. Caleb's sake. like if Doug had passed him yesterday, he could still point to Caleb could still point to. It was a Division One team I did it against, not an FCS I don't think team. Caleb would have said that. Yeah, he could, but he could. I mean, hell, he didn't even want to say his own name about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't even want to say that out loud, so he obviously wouldn't I think have. the humility of it all. Right. Yeah. But we we would have said, yeah, 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 FCS versus <laughs> Division One. Let's be real. FCS, FCS school 
with 51 new players and a 12 year old and a 12 year old calling plays. Hey, the 12 year old was right. I think we really need to. Like... No, I he the best call they made all day was taking that timeout, so they got one extra play. Yeah, but then they then the 12 year old didn't call the play because they didn't That's do right. anything with it. They should have. They should have get. He the didn't 12 year old allowed on. the coach. He needed a headset. Yeah, he allowed the coach to actually make yeah, yeah. the call on the play. That 12 year old needed a headset. All right, coming up next. Is Justin Verlander done for the season? Here's the 3-2 pitch. Swing and a miss, strike three. And this one mercifully comes to an end. Two strikeouts in the inning for Alex Vesey. Retires the side in order. And the Dodgers go back to 50 games. 5-0. Over 500. Back to the Press Box Summer Edition. What are you going to tell me the Dodgers are the best team in baseball? I, I told you they're the best team in baseball from April through, through September. I told you that. <laughs> I told you that like 10 times. They're always the best team through April, from April through to September. So normally we're on here with Ed panicking about the best team in baseball, the Dodgers. Uh, Pitching. Why he's worried about them. But today I'm going to tell you why I'm a little bit panicked. Uh-oh. Uh, Justin Verlander left his start on Sunday after three innings due to calf discomfort. So it wasn't in his arm. Uh, which is probably good news, but calf discomfort because uh, the Astros, apparently anytime somebody gets hurt, they just say whatever body part and it's in discomfort, regardless of what it is. Michael Brantley's out for the season because he has to have shoulder surgery. Shoulder discomfort. Yeah. When he first was out there, he's got shoulder discomfort. Oh, his shoulders screwed up. He's got to have surgery. He's done for the year, like a month later. Um, But right now the Astros closer is on the IL. Their best hitter, Jordan Alvarez missed the game on Sunday due to a hand injury. He now apparently has a hand, an injury on both hands, which doesn't seem ideal for somebody that's going to swing a bat. Uh, there would be starting center fielder is not on the IL, but hasn't played in five games because he dislocated his finger sliding back into a base. And Michael Brantley, who would probably have the highest batting average on the team is already out for the season due to shoulder discomfort. Um, it's almost September. We're a month and a week or two away from the postseason being here. Little concern the injuries are piling worried? up. And again, best starting pitcher, best reliever, best hitter are all hurt at the moment. Yeah, a little bit worried about the whole injury situation right now. I wouldn't be worried. You get the best team. They do not. The Dodgers have the best team. <laughs> it's not remotely close at the moment. Uh, and if they don't have their best reliever, best starter, or best hitter, they definitely don't have the best team. Uh, but yes, I, I am a little worried at the moment, but that is injury-related. Ah, calf not... strain. What's a calf strain nowadays? <sighs> He left so he the misses, game. So he misses a few starts. So he misses a few starts. He left the game. There's only a few starts left in the season. If he misses like three, the third one's like the postseason opener. Right calf discomfort. Yeah. A little concerned. Uh, he apparently got it trying to run over to cover first base during a rundown, which is even worse, by the way. Just just don't cover first base. Just let him have the runner. Just That's fine if they're safe at first. We'll be fine. Uh, so yeah, a little bit, little bit concerned. What I'm excited about in baseball, though, Uh, The World Baseball Classic. All right. We've got uh, Kyle Tucker of the Astros and Mookie Betts of the Dodgers both committed over the last few days to play for Team USA. So right now, these are the Americans that are committed to playing for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. Tucker and Betts, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Paul Goldschmidt, Trevor Story, Nolan Arenado, JT Realmuto, Pete Alonso, Cedric Mullins. I'm very excited. That is a, a, I think they're missing probably like a second baseman or a shortstop. Trevor Story exists. He can play either one. Uh, But that is a really good team. And I'm very excited for the World Baseball Classic. 
What about Trey Turner? Uh, he is not committed. As He'd far be good. As, as far as I know, would be nice. They need some more middle infield. They've got like five outfielders on there: Tucker, Betts, Harper, Trout. Uh, they've got two first basemen already. Uh, but yeah, and Cedric Mullins is in the outfield. Um, I'm very excited. I'm very curious to see who the pitchers will be, because the, yeah, we haven't seen those yet. Well, so the weird part about the World Baseball Classic is it's going to take place in March, right? Season starts in April. For the most part, I'm assuming starting pitchers are not going to join the World Baseball Classic team because that'll be the key time for them to get ready for the season. Um, Maybe some relievers will be there because that's a little bit easier to get ready as a reliever than it is as a starter. So I'm curious what we see for starting pitchers. Are we going to see a bunch of like double-A guys running out there? Because for other countries too, there have not been many starting pitchers that have committed, right? We haven't, we've seen like George Springer is going to play for Puerto Rico, right? Like, but we don't know who any of the pitchers are going to be for Puerto Rico. Like the other teams are getting their hitters lined up too, but who their starters are, no idea. So it's going to be like double A guys pitching to the best to all-star lineups. <laughs> so it could be a lot of fun. We could have a lot of 11 to 10 games in the world baseball classic, but I am, I'm very excited to watch intense baseball in March next year. It's going to be a good time. I, I'm, are you surprised this many stars have said yes to it? Uh, not on that the hitter's side. Season? Because here's the thing. Uh, Harper and Trout were, I think, the first two. And they were like, absolutely, I'm all in. And I think once you sort of get Harper and Trout to be like, yeah, I'm going to do this, everybody else is like, well, well, of course, yeah, I'll do it too. Okay. Like, it becomes a lot easier to say yes to it. So not, not too much surprised at the moment that that many players would be committed right now. And obviously, you know, one of these guys suffers an injury and he's rehabbing, then they'll back out and they won't play in the world baseball classic. But you know what, if you know, Bryce Harper came back, but like if Bryce Harper wasn't going to play because of an injury, they still have four other all-star outfielders out there. So very excited about the world baseball classic. Um, Did you see the Araldis Chapman story? I did not. Yes. It's amazing. Araldis Chapman is going on the IL because he has uh, an infection in his leg because he got a tattoo. Oh, that is an amazing story. <laughs> He's on the IL? Yeah, they put him on the IL. Okay, was the internet being serious that the tattoo was of Betty Boop? I do not know what the tattoo is of. Okay, no. Because I may have been, like, the internet may have fooled me on that one. But I do, it, I did not see. It would be delightful if it's like, that is a bad tattoo. I did not see what the tattoo actually was. Um, but yes, he's on the IL. Due to a leg infection after getting team can't catch a break a new tattoo team can't catch a break these poor Yankees I, okay so I I feel bad for Araldis Chapman here like what what happened he went to get a tattoo and his leg got infected so badly he can't pitch that sounds like he didn't put the like balm on that you're are let you you're supposed to leave it like covered for a certain amount of time it sounds like he took the the, well, the stuff off or you know what it means it's got leg discomfort leg discomfort. Calf discomfort. Where's discomfort. the tattoo on his Where's leg? Calf thigh. At, probably on his string. Calf. Calf discomfort. At what point do you go? Hey, got, hey, hey. We're trying to win. Don't get out a here. Don't get a tattoo. <laughs> hey, if we do win, then you get, can get one of Yeah, the, we win yeah. the World Series and get as many tattoos <laughs> as you want. Don't ride motorcycles. Don't get tattoos during the season. Uh, we're, we got to cover first base. We got to. Don't cut. Do not cover first base. We got to win the World Series.